Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Back From The Borderline. I'm your host, Molly. And I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power You just didn't know that, and now you do. Our time together provides a chance for you to unhook from your overextended life, to explore, understand, and integrate the darkest parts of your soul. On this podcast, there's no finish line, no quick fix, and no cure. There's no outcome, only eternal unfolding. More than 50% of us will be diagnosed with some form of mental illness at some point in our lifetime. The medical model of mental illness tries to convince us that the root of our suffering is some kind of chemical imbalance in our malfunctioning brains, that the best we can hope for is to numb or suppress our symptoms into remission, as if our personalities were some kind of cancerous tumor. What if, instead, we viewed our symptoms as saviors. The definition of savior is one that saves from danger or destruction. Through this new lens, 
we can begin to see painful mental health symptoms as natural responses that we can learn to become fully conscious of, integrate, and slowly change. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. I thought today was a good opportunity to do the full, long style of the intro, because sometimes we need a reminder of this. We need a reminder that we have everything within us to heal and transform. We're about to jump into part seven of our series on toxic shame. This is by far the longest and most in-depth exploration of any one topic I've covered on this podcast so far in the almost over two and a half years that I've been doing this. And before we jump into what we're going to be discussing today around toxic shame, I wanted to play a few voicemails that I've received over the last couple of weeks that I felt like were the pure embodiment of people who are experiencing the devastating impact of toxic shame. In these listeners' voices, you can hear the pain. You can hear the hatred of themselves in certain instances. And so much of this I can relate to. And while it's difficult to hear, it also provides hope because One of the things about toxic shame is that it makes you feel like you're the only broken one, that you're the only one going through this, and that somehow everyone else has it figured out. And listening to these voicemails helps me feel less alone, and I hope that it can do that for you too. Hey Molly, my name is Bria. I'm turning 40 next week. I live in New York City. I'm a premium submarine. And um, I'm in a lot of pain. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while. And I've this has been such a hard year. I was in a psych ward. I was in a mental hospital. My parents have spent a lot of money on help trying to help me recover. But it's not, it's not working. All that really helps is being with like-minded people, moving my body, and trying to live in my purpose, which is challenging because I don't really know what that is, but I know that I'm here for a reason and I have to just keep going even when it feels like there's no hope. I am a carrier of severe intergenerational trauma, specifically from the Holocaust. Um, I've struggled with ADHD symptoms, with OCD symptoms. Um, I've had pretty toxic relationships with men, with friends, in work environments. I've been fired many times. I'm getting to the end of my time here, but I just want to say to anyone listening, if this gets posted, um, you're not alone. This is, this is real. It's a struggle, but we show up for each other every day. Hi, Molly. Um, My name is Rachel. I'm 23 and I'm calling from Arizona. 
Um, I actually just found your podcast because I was doing some research and came across The Simpsons of Borderline and had never um, resonated with something so much. Uh, It feels like it put language to the feelings that I have felt for so long. Um, So first of all, thank you for creating just this resource and platform, and it's just been so helpful. Um, But I was... um, just wanting to just voice some feelings that I've had recently, um, wondering if you had any insight on it um, or if it at all like resonated with you. I feel like it is such a lonely feeling, um, but I feel like I have been screaming my whole life, just drowning my whole life um, and feeling like no one could hear me. And as a kid, I tried so hard to let someone know that I wasn't okay but to not seem like I was you know crazy and I feel like I got so good at masking and now as an adult no no one still knows that there's anything going on with me no one knows my internal struggles and it's really hard to still feel like you're screaming as an adult that no one can hear feels like it doesn't have the weight it held as a kid if that makes sense hi going through a really intense breakup I think this would be the third one that I've had that has brought up the intensity that I'm feeling of abandonment. But this is the first one that I'm trying to own it and grow from it, which is really scary and really hard. I lived with my partner for two years out of the three years we were together and cleaning house has proven to be one of the most difficult things I have ever done and I have pushed them so far away yet somehow they still want to be in my life and they don't know how to hold that and feel deserving of that and trust that How do I own the mistakes that I've made while feeling deserving and not like the worst person? How do I go there? Hey, Molly. I just found you yesterday. And and I love your podcast. And my name is Jean. I'm calling you from Albuquerque, New Mexico. We call it the 505. I am... In kind of a lot in trouble, you know. I think my whole life is this toxic shame. I literally do not leave my house, and my, my husband died, and he was, and it was just a horrible, traumatic thing. And um, I just can't be around people anymore. I mean, my dog, my dog tries to be my mother, me, and I was just crazy. I'm in a really bad relapse, and, and I'm 59 years old. It's not like I'm a kid, and it's not like I don't know better. But these shame issues, if I don't work on these and get this, you know, just some kind of my life back, what's the point, you know? So, um, I just wanted to say hi. And that I, um, I appreciate you. Sometimes I like to listen to these voicemails and then just <clears throat> provide a reaction where you hear my true emotional response to these types of things and um it's so 
It's so moving to hear these voicemails and it also just breaks my heart because the reality is so many of us are hurting and so many of us are trying so hard to cover that pain up, blame ourselves for that pain or isolate ourselves from the world or we go out into the world with our masks like Rachel described and we feel like we're screaming and no one can hear it and that we're an adult now and that we can't scream but we can and each and every one of these listeners who reached out is screaming in their own way and I just want to reach out in the way that I know how which is through this podcast to tell you that you're not alone and if you're experiencing anything like what Bria, Rachel, Sal, or Jean are going through, you aren't alone. And Jean, you mentioned that you're 59, you're not a kid anymore. It's not like you don't know better. We're all just hurt and broken kids drowning in our toxic shame. We hear Sal saying she doesn't even feel deserving of forgiveness and love. We hear Bria saying she's in and out of the psych ward. Her parents are spending money and she's a victim of generational family trauma that's echoing across the history and time with horrific events like the Holocaust. Jean dealing with drug addiction and the loss of her partner. There's so much pain. And there is a root cause to this. But there is a way through. And if there's anything I've learned in my life, is that the pain does make sense. And we can make sense and make meaning of this. But the only way out is through. And it's through understanding. It's through shining a light on these dark corners through feeling like we're not alone that we can find hope and there is hope so I want to say thank you Bria, Rachel, Sal and Jean for bravely sharing your voice and it's my honor to play it here and I know that your words will have a ripple effect and touch the hearts of other listeners tuning in who may not even feel like they can reach out they're too scared to leave a voicemail So thank you. I'm going to wipe the crying boogers and tears off of my face really quick. And then we're going to meet back in a hot second so we can dive into this shame series. Because we're going to keep exploring this. And we're going to get to the bottom of this pain together. So let's do it. Alright everyone, I'm proud to say that I no longer am covered in tears and boogers and we are back at my desk and we're going to continue on this journey through toxic shame together. So last week we talked all about emotions and how our feelings and our emotions are so incredibly important and 
toxic shame and trauma that we endure as children and throughout our lives, what it does is it twists emotions, it cuts off our access to them, and instead of our feelings being something that we can use to get our needs met and meet our own needs and process pain, it's almost like they become toxic frozen blocks inside of us. And so we either express emotions like anger and rage in really toxic ways, or it's almost like we go completely inward and lose touch with our emotions entirely. And the result of either one of those is that we become cut off from our needs and the ability to get our needs met. And that's what we're going to be talking about at the beginning of this episode is we're going to be talking about our needs and our developmental dependency needs. How many of us out there, you might be you listening, my listener, that just feels like a needy black hole. It's like, it's almost like you need, need, need. You want more love, more attention, more this. It's like you can't get enough or that you feel like you just, you need more from people, but you don't even know how to give words to it. It's such a common feeling. And I brought this up in a previous episode in our shame series. One of the scariest times I had in my journey when I was, doing one-on-one therapy was when my therapist looked me in the eyes and said, well, what do you need? And I just didn't know what the fuck to answer to that. I I don't know what my needs are. I don't know. I don't know. And that really freaked me out because then I felt like double shame. I was like, what kind of person doesn't know what their own needs are? What does that say about me? Right. And then I continued to spiral. So as children, We had needs that depended on others for fulfillment. Children are by nature dependent and needy, and that's okay. (laughs) That's what they're supposed to be. They need their parents for almost up to around 15 years. And as children, our dependency needs can only be satisfied by a good enough caretaker. Children need someone to hold them and to touch them. They need a face to mirror and affirm their feelings, their needs and their drives. We need to have that stuff reflected back to us in a healthy way as children. Otherwise, it gives rise to disorder and dysfunction later in our life. And it makes perfect sense. And if that's the case for you, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just A plus B equals C. Caroline Leaf is a neuroscientist and she also has a podcast that's called cleaning up your mental mess i highly recommend her because she is someone who's very rare she's someone who studies the human brain is highly qualified but also has a spiritual center and i just think it's so important that when we study the human brain and we go in the scientific direction that we don't forget the human quality in it that's just me 
and she explores something. And when she talks about exploring maybe maladaptive things that we do, she says, approach your symptoms and the things you're doing and that maybe what you want to change in your life that you have a lot of shame about zoom out and look at it like a thought detective. And it's kind of a childlike way of viewing it, but I find it to be very comforting and helpful. Sometimes we need to zoom out to 10,000 feet and look at how things are going in our life and just say, yeah, it's painful, but that pretty much makes sense. This was my upbringing. This is how my parents were raised. These are the developmental needs that I missed out on. I'm going to look at it from a 10,000 foot view. I'm not going to feel like shit about it. I'm not going to think I'm the only one. I'm not going to fall into learned helplessness and become a victim. I'm going to realize, "Uh uh-huh, yep, I'm a thought detective. This makes sense. And I'm going to work on how to get these needs met for myself. And that is possible. But in order to be able to do that, we have to know how to name and understand what we missed out on. And that's what I'm going to try my best to offer you today. So as I was saying, as a child, you needed a, a, a secure, good enough parent to be able to mirror and affirm your feelings, your needs, and your drives. As children, we need a structure with limits. We need predictability. And if you feel like you grew up in an environment where it's you just never really knew what was going to happen next... If that's the sense you got about your childhood, doesn't matter if you were raised with money, if you were raised in poverty, or if you were raised right there down the middle. If you were raised in an unpredictable environment with no real structure and you didn't know what was coming next, that's a really good indicator that a lot of the dysfunction in your life and the way you might be feeling and you just kind of feel like you have almost like you're just completely detached and floating without any grounding, it makes a lot of sense. Children need a mutually trusting relationship. We need to know that there's someone we can count on. We need to have space. We need to be able to be different than our parents and have that be okay. We need security. We need to have enough nutritional food to eat, we need clothing, we need shelter, and we need access to adequate medical care. These are our basic needs. But in addition to that, children also need their parents' time and attention. And children need direction in the form of problem-solving techniques, strategy, and some kind of spiritual mentorship, not based in any particular religion, because that can even go toxic, but they need to be able to ask the big questions of someone and understand their meaning and purpose here. And if you had some of these needs met, for example, maybe you never went without a meal, you had clothing and shelter, which is something that some people don't have. And maybe you beat yourself up saying, my childhood wasn't so bad. I never went hungry but maybe you went very hungry for your parents' time and attention and emotional validation. That can give rise to just as much pain as someone who maybe grew up without having access to food or shelter, right? It's just different. Your pain might be more psychological, but it's pain all the same. Let's just list the different basic dependency needs that a child needs to get met in order to have 
a healthy and integrated psychological life as an adult. And as I list through these, I want you to really think about what it was like for you. And some of these you might say, oh yeah, I I had those needs met. But then others, maybe you are going, oh, I never even thought of that. And that's something I absolutely missed out on. And if you have the ability to do so, I encourage you to write down the needs, take a note in your iPhone or write it down on a piece of paper, the ones that you feel like maybe you missed out on. And here's the thing. It's very, very rare to meet someone who got every single one of these needs met. Why? Because of this toxic shame stuff, right? And generational trauma. There's so much pain going on and no one parent is able to really meet all these needs. I'm sure they're out there, but it's very, very rare. So write down these needs that you didn't get met and then start to make a plan on how you can maybe start giving some of this stuff back to yourself, okay? So the first basic dependency need that we need met as children has to do with self-value. So children need a sense of mattering. Children need to be taken seriously. They need to have a sense of being wanted because they're themselves. And they need to know that it's okay to be different. They can assert themselves as a unique individual in their family and their feelings are taken seriously. They matter in that system. They're not just part of the furniture. So ask yourself, did you have a sense of mattering in your family? Were your feelings taken seriously? Did you feel like it was okay to be different? If not, you should write down self-value on this list of needs that you're going to be creating. So the next dependency need is stimulation, right? So kids need to experience both pleasure and pain. I know that's kind of crazy, right? It's just, and think about it this way, right? It's imagine the classic example of when a kid touches the stove, you learn, ouch, that hurts. I'm not going to do that again. I got a huge blister. So you learn, I'm not going to touch the stove. Maybe as a kid too, you misjudged the height of something and you jump down and you feel a deep pain in your knees and you're like, oh, I'm maybe not going to jump off of really high things. I'm actually just going to kind of slide down this stone wall instead of jumping down because it hurts my legs. You need to learn. Pleasure right? Maybe as a kid, you lay on the ground and you feel the sun on your face and you think, ah, everything's okay. I think all of us can go back to at least one time in our childhood where we were like, that was bliss, right? I remember once when I was young, I got to go on a horseback ride and I still remember just like the sense of freedom and happiness I felt on that horse. And that's a sense of stimulation that I got as a child, I think I did get my stimulation needs met very well as a child. My parents did the best they could with the financial resources we had. We weren't very wealthy. My parents were both school teachers, but they did everything they could to get us outside. We went camping a lot and we traveled to the extent that we could. So 
kids in terms of stimulation, they need fun, they need excitement, challenge, and play. I spent my whole entire childhood outside playing with the kids on my block. Sometimes I wouldn't even come home until it was dark outside. Kids now, it breaks my heart because I feel like less and less that's the case. So did you get your stimulation needs met? Ask yourself that. And if not, write down stimulation in this list of needs that you're going to be writing down that you're going to be giving back to yourself. So moving on, we're going to be talking about sociality needs, which include healthy primary caretakers. So ask yourself what this looked like for you as a child. Healthy primary caretakers would have offered you mirroring. In other words, if you're sad, this looks like this. A kid falls on a playground. The parent runs up to the kid and says, oh, that must have hurt so much. The kid's crying and the parent's face mirrors that and says, oh, you must be in so much pain, sweetie. I'm so sorry you fell down. I know that hurts, right? That's mirroring. What is not healthy mirroring is a kid falls down and the dad maybe goes, yeah, whatever. You're going to be fine. Stop crying, right? Then this also looks like affirmation of feelings and needs. The parent provides time to the kid and also gives them nurturing. And you feel like your primary caretakers and you had a very significant relationship. You feel like they really saw you. They married, mirrored back your feelings. And if you don't feel like that was the case, you need to write down some of those things. The next need that's very important is that of structure. We need to be able to feel like we had a sense of direction and modeling with boundaries and predictability and have firm limits set for us. And if you felt like that wasn't the case, that can give rise to some serious dysfunction in your lives. So you're going to have to learn how to set boundaries for yourself. You're going to have to learn how to create an environment of predictability for yourself now. That includes morning routines, nighttime routines, setting limits for yourself, saying, I'm going to turn off my phone at this time. And if you didn't have limits or structure as a child, it's going to be really difficult for you. That's going to cause some serious dysfunction. So if that's something you didn't have, write down structure. And then we're going to be working on a plan, you will rather, to give that back to yourself. So two more core needs that we're going to cover here. One is security. Security, dependency needs, if you got them, look like receiving adequate medical care, enough food, protection, clothing, and shelter. If your safety was threatened, you felt like you had a parent who would stand up for you. Someone who didn't have their security needs met might have not received the medical care they needed, didn't have enough food, maybe went to school hungry. Um, They had a really unpredictable environment at home. Maybe a family member was allowed to abuse you and you felt like you weren't protected from that, right? So if that's something you missed out on, I want you to write down security needs. So the last basic dependency need is something called stroking. And that sounds kind of like, (laughs) you know, you did not need to get stroked as a child. (laughs) Um, But stroking means 
attention, being recognized, being held and touched in an appropriate and comforting way, encouragement, praise, and warmth, right? You needed that as a child. You needed to feel Whenever I think of nurturing this stroking thing, I think of Miss Honey from Matilda. I remember watching Matilda and just literally wanting to go live with Miss Honey because she represented that warmth, that nurturing, that safe parental energy that so many of us maybe felt like we didn't get. And so now that I've listed all of these out, I want you to really think about this. I hope you are writing down what you missed out on because it's important that you identify what you missed out on and don't spiral about it, remember? But there are ways you can give this stuff back to yourself and there are ways you can stop this cycle. And if you're a parent yourself, you can start to learn to give this back to your own children. But unless you learn how to give it to yourself, You're going to be raising kids that see a parent. You're going to be modeling something for your kids that is devoid of these basic needs. And no matter how much you love your kid, if you don't respect yourself enough to identify this and give it back to yourself, you're going to be unwittingly passing this same stuff on to your children. So the neglect by parents of meeting these basic dependency needs, which I want to reiterate again, is just the norm in our society today. It Because of toxic shame and generational trauma and lack of resources and just very deep systemic cultural messages that our parents would have had to be and their parents and their parents would have had to be superhuman to resist. And there are parents out there who were able to We often think of abandonment, and you hear about abandonment a lot, especially when things like BPD are being mentioned. You have like real or perceived sense of abandonment. When we think of abandonment, we think of someone physically leaving, like a dad just picking up and leaving his family. And that does happen, and that is abandonment. But we can also be abandoned through the neglect of our developmental dependency needs. And this abandonment through the neglect of our developmental dependency needs is a major factor in becoming what in recovery circles is referred to as an adult child. And you heard in the voicemails today, right? It's, I feel like I should be doing better than this. I feel like I'm an adult. I should know better. And now I'm, I'm, a, I'm an adult, but I still feel like I'm screaming, right? This is called being an adult child. We're a child trapped in an adult's body. We grow up. We look like adults. We walk around and talk like adults most of the time, unless you're like me and you lose your shit. And sometimes you actually do like cry and throw tantrums like a little baby. But beneath the surface is a tiny, hurt, terrified little child who feels empty and needy and who's needs are almost insatiable. And if you know what insatiable means, insatiable means it's like you can't get enough because we have child's needs in an adult body. And this insatiable child is the root cause of all compulsive, destructive, and addictive behavior. So you'll remember that in the previous episode of the shame series, we went through the case study of Max. And 
if you've listened this far, you need to pause the podcast and go back and listen to episodes one through six of this series because the story of Max is one that we went in detail into. In the case of Max, John Bradshaw's client who suffered through intense generational toxic shame and it ended up being the death of him, right? He ended up passing away. He suffered with addiction and suicidal ideation. In the case of Max, most of his needs were converted into sexual feelings. And this is what made up his intense sexual addiction. But it's also the core dynamic in all sexual addiction. When someone's abandoned, especially through abuse, we no longer are a person. We are made into an object. And in our case study, Max was actually used by his own older brother to alter his brother's shame. Max was physically abandoned by his father. He was used by his family system. When we're used, we become an object. And when we are objectified, we more easily objectify ourselves. And Max objectified himself. And through this internalized shame, Max turned himself into an object of his own contempt, his own criticism, his own judgment and scorn. He was his own object of rejection. And when we objectify ourselves, And when we objectify others, we lose our humanity. And since Max could no longer experience himself as a whole human person, he couldn't experience anyone else as a whole human person. Max spent his entire life hustling women. He was obsessed with women's breasts He had no regard for women as human beings. He risked his family and his entire reputation to grope women in shopping malls or get glimpses of them through his voyeuristic activities. But another dynamic aspect of the sexual conversion of basic needs is the pleasure of sexual orgasm itself. When we're shamed through abandonment, The pain is so deep and far-reaching and profound that we feel worthless. We feel painfully broken down, diminished, and exposed. And when someone experiences sexual stimulation or climax or orgasm, they have available to them this just for a brief moment an all-encompassing, powerful feeling of pleasure. And this pleasure can replace any other need that might be lacking. In previous episodes, we've discussed the work of American psychologist James Kaufman. And he is still alive, and he is known for his research on creativity. And Kaufman wrote about this process of converting all of our needs into sexuality. And this is what he wrote about that. 
A young boy who learns never to need anything emotionally from his parents is faced with a dilemma whenever he feels young, needy, or otherwise insecure. If masturbating has been his principal source of good feeling, he may resort to masturbation in order to restore good feelings about self, big S self, right? At times when he's experiencing needs quite unrelated to sexuality. I want you to really think about that, right? It can remind you of when there are people who literally will feel stressed or they feel alone or they feel angry and they'll maybe go turn on a porn video and stimulate themselves because this is the only way they know how to regulate or self-soothe. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I want to make this very clear. There's nothing inherently wrong with masturbation or anything like that. It's the fact that we sometimes use that as the only way we can self-soothe, and then that can sometimes give rise to addiction. And when there's imbalance in anything, we can look at it as maybe something that is an addiction or unhealthy and There are other ways that we could meet our needs than just that. So with this description of the converting our needs, all of our needs into this kind of contorted sense of sexuality, our ego defense of conversion transforms any of our developmental needs into the need for something else. So this could be food, right? Maybe you get sad and you immediately want to eat food or you start to feel empty and you need food. It could be money. It could be a shopping addiction. It could be excessive attention, feeling like you need to text a bunch of people or hang out with someone or go on a date. In Max's case though, it was sex. So over the course of his childhood, the experience of his developmental needs became associated with his sex drive. And this eventually resulted in the conversion of his emotional needs into only sexuality. So whenever Max felt insecure, anxious, or needy, the inner event registered as sexual desire. So Max turned continuously to sex to meet needs that sex can't provide. I want you to ask yourself, can you relate to this? Maybe you're constantly returning to sex to meet needs that sex can't provide. Maybe you are turning to shopping to meet needs that shopping can't provide. Maybe you're turning to alcohol, to food, to validation on social media. If you're anything like me, there was a time where before I started my podcast. And this was when I took like a three-year break from social media completely. As many of you know, I pursued a career in music for a while and that involved me. I had an Instagram that had a pretty decent following and I mainly just posted really provocative photos of myself. And look, there's nothing inherently wrong about that at all. This is not to shame you if you do that, but I know where those pictures came from. And I altered the picture so much, but it was to the point where you couldn't even tell because I was really good at it. And I created this very idealized, sexualized version of myself. And I lived for the validation that I would get from people online. I was turning to that to meet needs that 
social media validation could not provide. So I really want you to think about how do you, what are you using now? And it doesn't even have to be drugs. This is the thing. So many people have such a sense of moral superiority saying, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. But at the same breath, they use shopping or porn or something that's more socially acceptable. Not that porn is necessarily socially acceptable, but it kind of is. They use something that's socially acceptable or even workaholism. Are you using your work? If you use something socially acceptable in a dysfunctional way to meet needs, it doesn't make you any better than a drug addict or an alcoholic. So in previous episodes of the shame series, I'm going to keep saying you need to go back and listen. So this episode's really important. If you've gotten this far, I assume you've already listened to the first episodes, but if you're still here and you're like, fuck that Molly, I'm just going to keep listening. Well, it's on you because you really do need to go back because we're referring back to a lot of stuff that we've already talked about in previous episodes. And it'll make way more sense if you start from the beginning, because now we're going to talk about abandonment and how we can actually be abandoned through becoming enmeshed in the overt and covert needs of our family systems. So in previous episodes, we've described the family as a social system, right? Each family has different components, different rules, and different roles that are almost like laws, that allow this family to maintain a sense of homeostasis, of balance. And if one person steps out of the rules and out of the roles, even if they're toxic, it disrupts the homeostasis and then you're the problem. And we've seen how a dysfunctional family uses the members of the family to maintain that balance by putting them in these roles and establishing these rules. And the more dysfunctional the family system, the more closed and rigid are the roles and rules. I'm going to say this again. The more dysfunctional and toxic the family system, the more rigid and closed the rules and roles are that it assigns. In families that are chemically, sexually, or violently dysfunctional, the needs of the system are overt. And remember, in previous episodes, we talked about the difference between overt and covert. I'm going to kind of detail it again to remind you. Overt is like obvious. It's out in the open. Covert is in secret. So when we have families that struggle with drug addiction, alcoholism, sexual abuse, or extreme violence, the needs are overt. It's obvious. The system dispenses its roles for the members of the family to play in order to keep the balance. And all the rigid roles set up by family dysfunction are forms of abandonment. I know it's going to get old, but I have to say that again so you really, really absorb it. I don't repeat stuff unless it's really important. Rigid roles set up by family dysfunction are forms of abandonment. So we talked about Max's family, our case study, and his brother was the family hero, right? So if you're placed in the family hero role, you have to be strong. 
You can never show the scared, vulnerable part of yourself because heroes aren't supposed to be scared. The roles dispensed in toxic, dysfunctional family systems are almost like scripts given out for a play. They give to you the feelings that you can or can't have, and you have to play the role. Oftentimes when people play the hero role for years in their family, they no longer even know who they are. And when they enter recovery in their adulthood, you have to learn how to give up that role. And to give up that role, you have to learn to be vulnerable and understand that you don't have to be the hero. You have to learn how to be a member of a group rather than a leader, to follow rather than lead. Individuals who were forced into that hero role in child maybe hate group projects. They have a hard time maybe even being in relationships or marriages. That means regardless of what your gender is, you have to be able to lead and follow in your relationships. And because the roles of these toxic and dysfunctional family systems maintain the balance of the system, they exist for the system. The children in these systems give up their own reality to take care of this toxic and dysfunctional system, to keep it whole and balanced. They're exerting all of their energy and sacrificing their own development to maintain a toxic and dysfunctional system. Each different form of abandonment breaks that interpersonal bridge that we talked about. It breaks the mutual intimacy bond. A child is so precious and unique. And unless a child is treated with value and love and as though it is precious and unique, this sense of preciousness diminishes And in the case of internalized shame, it just disappears completely. And it's absolutely devastating. So now we're going to be talking about the internalization of images and the connection that toxic shame has with this. In psychology and psychiatry, the concept of internalization refers to a psychological process through which individuals take in and adopt external influences, values, beliefs, and norms into their own mental and emotional framework. Internalization involves incorporating aspects of the external world, like these attitudes, behaviors, beliefs, and expectations of significant people in our lives, like parents, caregivers, authority figures, or even people we see in the media into our own sense of self and identity. Internalization is a really complex and multifaceted process that begins during childhood and continues throughout our life. And it plays a super crucial role in the development of our personality, our self-concept, and the way that we function in social environments. And the process of internalization occurs through various different mechanisms, including 
just observing our world, social learning, and identification with different role models, and also just the time and society that we are raised in. And internalization has huge implications for our adult mental health and behavior. So when we internalize positive and adaptive values and beliefs, the result is healthy self-esteem, good social interaction and behavior. And I mean good by like healthy for you, right? Where it doesn't lead to dysfunction and disorder because there's lots of different ways to interact in a healthy way socially. And then effective self-soothing and coping strategies. Now, on the other hand, and this is, if you're tuning into the podcast, I'm also raising my hand. (laughs) If we've internalized negative or maladaptive influences like excessive criticism, unrealistic expectations, sexual shaming, fill in the blank. This is what contributes to our psychological distress, a low sense of self-worth, and the development of quote-unquote mental health issues. If you are seeing a mental health practitioner, it is highly likely that they are going to either be telling you that they're focusing on this or they're doing it behind the scenes. They're focusing on understanding your internalized beliefs and values so that they can help you identify and challenge any negative patterns that might be hindering your personal growth and well-being. Because if we foster more positive internalization and help our clients as mental health practitioners, I'm not one, I'm just kind of speaking on behalf of them. If mental health practitioners can help their clients foster more positive internalization and help them internalize healthier attitudes, healthier coping strategies, then their therapeutic intervention can lead to positive change in their clients' lives. So now we're going to talk about the interconnection of imagery and how internalization ties in with toxic shame now that you really understand that. A way that internalization occurs is by internalizing images. These internal images can be of a shaming person, of a place, or maybe an actual experience. They can be word images or even sound imprints. Hearing someone say certain words might actually trigger for you experiences of shame. Individual shame experiences are actually fused together by language and imagery. James Kaufman, our psychologist friend who we just mentioned a minute ago, says that scenes of shame become interconnected and magnified. And as the language, imagery, and scenes associated with shame are fused together The meaning of shame is transformed. So I feel shame then turns into actually mean I am shameful. I'm deficient in some vital way as a human being. It reminds me of the voicemail we listened to at the beginning of this episode is I broken up with this person I love and they're now telling me they still want me in their life. And I don't even deserve that. This person is viewing themselves as less than human. I don't deserve this. I am shameful. She didn't feel shame. She felt like she is shame. 
And that's a real, and that's so painful, right? In this way, shame's no longer a feeling among other feelings. It comes to become the core of who you are. Internalized shame creates a frozen inner state. As we've talked about, our feelings that are meant to be flowing like the tide of the ocean inside of us become like blocks of ice. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Shame is no longer an emotional signal that comes and goes. It's a deep all-encompassing sense of being a defective person, completely defective. You are the exception in a bad way. You're the only one that's broken. This core of defectiveness then forms the foundation around which other feelings about yourself will be experienced. And so in this way, over a period of time, this frozen feeling of belief recedes from consciousness and so then shame becomes basic to your identity you are then a shame-based person it's who you are so once we internalize shame the really shitty and sneaky part about it is that it can actually get activated without any kind of external stimuli so At this point, when we are shame, when it becomes who we are, there isn't even a need anymore for an interpersonal shame-inducing event. So in his book, Healing the Shame That Binds, John Bradshaw says that he remembered an experience that he had when he went to pay for a speeding ticket that he had. And as he walked up to the police station clerk, even though the clerk was warm and pleasant and smiling and it's just like another ticket that someone's paying, it's just an everyday thing, the shame welled up inside of John and he felt so much shame even though it was just a speeding ticket and the person who was helping him check out from the speeding ticket and pay his fine was just warm and inviting, but he was still flooded with this sense of shame. Now something else that happens when we become identified with this toxic shame is what Kaufman labeled the internal shame spiral. And so Kaufman describes internal shame spirals like this. A triggering event occurs. Perhaps it's trying to get close to someone and being rebuffed. And being rebuffed means kind of like being shoved away or rejected. 
or a critical remark by a friend. A person suddenly is enmeshed in shame. The eyes turn inward and the experience becomes totally internal, frequently with visual imagery present. The shame feelings flow in a circle, endlessly triggering each other. The precipitating event is relived internally over and over, causing the sense of shame to deepen, to absorb other neutral experiences, until finally the self is engulfed. In this way, shame becomes paralyzing. The spiral is one of the most devastating aspects of dysfunctional toxic shame. Because once we're in a spiral, it can cause us to relive other shameful experiences. And then what that does is that it solidifies shame further within our personality. And after we internalize shame, we have an increased fear of exposure. And it's hard to explain. It feels like we're going to be exposed. Exposed to what? To who? We don't, it doesn't matter. It's just a fear that doesn't make sense. And exposure now means having our essential defectiveness as a human being seen. How many of you have felt like you have to perform because if someone saw your true self, they're going to leave? I've heard time and time again from listeners is if someone really knew me, they wouldn't love me. So to be exposed means to be seen as irreparably and unspeakably bad and broken. And so we have to find a way to defend against being exposed. And as our defenses and our strategies of this transference are developed, our internalized shame becomes less and less conscious. This is how you can get so good at masking. And again, we heard this in the voicemails that we might not even be conscious ourselves of how much we're masking and defending against this exposure. So to sum it up, internalizing of this toxic shame has four major consequences. We develop a shame-based identity. The depth of shame is magnified and becomes frozen blocks of ice inside of us, not literally, but figuratively, of course. Autonomous shame activation or functional autonomy results. And finally, these internal shame spirals start operating in our daily life. So we're going back to our friend Max, our case study of toxic shame Max. We've explored his entire family and how his internalized toxic shame led to so many devastating consequences in his life, including his eventual death and his previous sexual addiction. Max went to school in a private religious school through the eighth grade. And for those of you who aren't in the United States, eighth grade means that it's about to the ages of 13, 14 he then went to a public high school. So his school experience itself was fairly typical of most modern schools, and he would have been going to school probably in the 60s and 70s. And shaming has always been an integral part 
of our school system, there was a time when teachers would actually make kids sit in a corner with something called a dunce cap on their head. This was a common association with school days not too long ago. And even the most modern forms of education today, they may not use this sit in a corner and put the dunce cap on. But there are powerful sources of toxic shame still operating in our school system. And there are many educators who are shame-based people, and the educational system is still a major force in solidifying the internalization process of shame-based people. We're now going to talk about one of the concepts that is close to my heart, and not in a good way, and that is perfectionism. Perfectionism is a family system rule, and it's also a core culprit in creating toxic shame. We see perfectionism in religious, schooling, and cultural system. Perfectionism denies healthy shame. And how it does that is because it assumes that we can be perfect. Assuming that we can be perfect, that that's even a possibility, denies us our own humanity because it denies reality. And the reality is, is that we are essentially limited. Perfectionism denies that we'll make mistakes often and that it's natural to make mistakes. That's the reality. Perfectionism is involved Whenever we take a negative norm or standard and we do something called absolutizing it. And once it's absolutized, the norm becomes the measure of everything else. And so we compare and judge according to this unrealistic expectation. So think about it this way. In school, we were compared to the perfect score of 100%. And as we failed to make 100%, we were graded on a descending scale with the lowest mark being zero or an F. Think of the symbolism of F as a grade. It's associated in our mental imagery with even like the F word or even just failure, right? F means fail. When a child becomes a failure in school, it's not long before there's an association with being a failure as a person. A fuck up. Let that really sink in. This is what we're doing to children in our school systems. This is what happened to you. Children get this association very quickly in school. They associate bad grades with being a bad or defective person. They don't have the capacity to think about the fucked up nature of the system itself. And most often the children that are failing are already shame-based when they come to school. And in fact, their shame base often causes their school failure to begin with. As they fail in school, their internalized shame deepens. And as we've talked about before, shame begets shame. And when we say begets, it means shame 
creates shame. It's a self-creating thing. It just, you think about the snake eating its own tail. Shame creates, shame creates shame. Max is a great example of another route taken by shame-based children in school. He followed the lead of his shame-based brother and sister, and he became a super achiever in school. Max was a straight-A student, and super achievement and perfectionism are two of the leading cover-ups for toxic shame. As paradoxical and confusing as it might seem, the straight-A student and the F student might both be driven by toxic shame. We talked about in previous episodes, toxic shame leads us to either think that we are more or less than human. And the drug addict and the super achieving, high-flying, work-addicted CEO have a lot more in common than they would ever probably be open to admit. I myself was a straight-A student. I would beat myself up and lose sleep at night if I felt like I wasn't going to get an A. I was the editor of my high school newspaper. I graduated in the top percentage of my class. But then at the same time, I was sneaking out and binge drinking and having really dangerous sexual encounters with men that were much older than me and being victimized and suffering so deeply. But here's the thing, how many high school principals or therapists or caring adults would take a student like me who is editor of the school paper, top graduating in the class, straight A student, and tell them that they need help for their internalized shame problems. Some kids who are perfectionist straight A students are even fully fledged alcoholics or drug addicts by their senior year in high school. But you would never know. Again, reminds me of the voicemail we received at the top of this episode. No one knows how much I'm struggling. In his book, Healing the Shame That Binds, John Bradshaw writes, I was a card-carrying alcoholic by my senior year in high school. I started drinking at age 14 and I had several blackouts by my senior year. High achievement is often the result of being driven by toxic shame. Feeling flawed and defective on the inside, I had to prove I was okay by being exceptional on the outside. Everything I did was based on getting authenticated on the outside. My good feelings depended upon achievement. John talks a lot about toxic shame turning us into human doings instead of human beings. And toxic shame creates human doings. People who must do to be okay. People who must do to belong. And only by accomplishment can these people feel okay about themselves. John Bradshaw wrote about a shame-based client bragging to him that he was worth $1 million. And John talked about this client as being a bit obnoxious, and he was brutally abusing his wife by flaunting affairs right in front of her. And this man's self-worth was his worth. This was the only way he had to gauge it. And since he felt flawed on the inside, 
he had to have verification of his worth from the outside. So by lots of affairs, lots of money. Our school system promotes a shame-based measure of grading people's intelligence. John C. Holt was an American author and educator, and he was a proponent of homeschooling and a pioneer in youth rights theory. And his work is prominent in the 1950s, and he wrote a book called How Children Fail, which cataloged the problems he saw with the American school system. And he didn't even believe that our school system even measured intelligence. John Holt believed that the true test of intelligence is not what you know or can regurgitate from memory on an exam. It's not what you know how to do, but what you do when you don't know what to do. And I love that. Intelligence isn't what you know how to do, but what you do when you don't know what to do. It's almost to me, it feels like it's, it shows your true character. You're able to admit you don't know what to do and you lean on your values and principles and you move forward in a way that feels true to you. That's a measure of true intelligence. Perfectionism also creates a sense of destructive competition. And just like anything else, there is a nurturing and healthy form of competitiveness. A healthy form of competitiveness actually moves us to do better, to expand and grow. But a toxic, perfectionistic system like our current school system encourages cheating And it creates high levels of distress and begets toxic shame. Grades are often posted publicly for everyone to see. And there is shaming exposure when someone gets quote-unquote bad grades. Even just the adjective bad lends itself to shame itself, right? I get bad grades. It's just... It's, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it that way. And in these types of toxic school systems, kids are pitted against the next kid in this warfare-like endeavor, right? And this communal sense of joint venture and cooperation are completely lost in this type of a system. Our schools display a huge amount of bias in educating the mind rather than the entire person. We place in our school systems all the emphasis on reasoning, logic, and math, and there is almost zero concern for emotions, intuition, and creativity. Imagine if you would have learned how to connect with your feelings when you were in school. Imagine if you would have learned the difference about healthy anger and toxic anger, how to release your feelings. Imagine if you would have learned DBT skills in school. Imagine if you would have learned how to express your creativity and dance and movement, right? But none of us actually learned any of those things. Students in our current educational system become memorizing mimics basically and learn to just become boring conformists rather than exciting and deeply feeling creators 
a lot of work has come out over the last few decades, just since probably like the 70s and 80s on to today in studying the right hemisphere of our brains. The right hemisphere of the brain is the source of what we know as, quote, felt thought. Felt thought is the core of music, writing, and poetry, art. The right hemisphere is holistic and intuitive. And instead of memory, it actually uses and relies upon imagination. And students who have a natural inclination for this side of the brain are penalized in our school system. There are so many brilliant students who have been painfully shamed over the years because their intuitive and felt ways of knowing were entirely shrugged off. Our rationalistic bias in school systems causes the shaming rejection of imagination and emotion. John Bradshaw wrote in this book that he remembered that he once gave a teacher his hunch about a presented problem, right? And a hunch is like, you know, I kind of just feel like this is the answer to the problem. And he reported that he remembered that he was told that guessing was not the mark of an educated mind. And so he was sent to the library to get the correct information. This is just one of many ways that our school systems shame the most vibrant and creative aspects of the human psyche and how our intuition and our connection with it continues to just get trampled on. So John Bradshaw talks also in his book about peer group shaming, and he references a client he had that he saw that he refers to as Arnold. And he said, Arnold was a brilliant accountant. He'd been viciously shamed in high school. His presenting problem was his criticalness of women. No woman was ever good enough. As his relationship with a woman would intensify, Arnold would start finding every single fault with her. He was a nitpicker of great expertise. Can anyone relate to this? I can. I can. The outcome of all this nitpicking was that he was 40 years old, fairly successful financially in other aspects of his life, but painfully alone. Arnold had some shaming in early childhood from an authoritarian and military type father, but this was tempered with enough love from his mother to save him from being terribly shame-based during early and middle childhood. Later on, his family moved to a small town and Arnold had to start the second semester of his sophomore year in a new high school. The town and high school were cliquish and very wealthy. Arnold was from a rather poor family. He rode the bus to school where 95% of kids had new cars. Arnold was scapegoated from the moment he set foot in the school. He was laughed at, made fun of, and ridiculed by one of the girls. Some days, he was hit with water bombs and sacks of horse shit as he waited for the bus. This treatment continued until the middle of his senior year. For two years, Arnold suffered almost chronic shaming. This was an excruciating experience. John wrote that high school is a time of puberty, and puberty is a time of feeling intense exposure and vulnerability. 
And whatever toxic shame a person carries from childhood is going to be tested in high school. And it's common for teenage groups to look for a scapegoat, someone that everyone can dump and project their shame onto. This was Arnold's fate, right? He was viciously shamed by a group of his female peers, and this accounted for his problem with women as an adult. Peer groups in our teenage years almost become like another parent. Only this parent is much more rigid and has several sets of eyes to really look you up and down, right? Physical appearance is crucial. Acne and maybe poor sexual development can be excruciating. I know this feeling. I was a really late bloomer. And so I was like the last one to get my period, the last one to get my boobs. I struggled with getting cold sores a lot when I was school. And I literally remember boys making fun of my lack of boobs, telling me that I had herpes because I had cold sores. And I was so ashamed and it really impacted me. And I grew up in a time too, where all the girls that I was going to school with in like the I was in junior high and high school between like the years of 2003 to 2008. And this is when everyone was wearing like all Abercrombie and Fitch and Hollister. And I couldn't afford those clothes. And I felt so ashamed and like I couldn't fit in. Conforming to the peer group dress standards is a must if you want to avoid being shamed, right? It shouldn't be the case but that's how a lot of kids can just feel invisible. My little sister, for an example, she largely kind of skated through high school and junior high by just kind of making herself invisible. I tried my hardest to fit in and it didn't work. But both of those things can result in feeling just kind of outcast from the in-group. And It is really disastrous for us in school if we are not physically or financially prepared to be able to meet the standards of these really, really painfully, toxically shaming peer groups. Elementary school years also can be a source of shame. Kids are really cruel. Any child with differences or deformities is especially vulnerable to ridicule. And children will shame other kids the way that they've been shamed themselves. So if a child is being shamed at home, it's almost like a game of hot potato. They want to pass that shame onto other people. Children like to tease each other. And teasing is a major source of shaming. And teasing is also done by shame-based parents who interpersonally transfer their own shame by teasing their kids. Older siblings do the same thing. They can deliver some of the most cruel teasing. Older siblings. John Bradshaw wrote in this book that he said some of the most horrifying stories he heard from his clients were accounts of being teased by older siblings. In the case of Max, our case study that we've been using School was perhaps the only place in Max's life where he wasn't shamed. His toxic shame motivated him to be an achiever. He put himself through graduate school by working all night. 
he endured tremendous hardships in order to get his degree. School was a place in his life where he felt like he could accomplish something. But the problem here is, and unfortunately, accomplishments do not reduce internalized toxic shame. In fact, the more we achieve, the more we have to achieve. Toxic shame is about being. No amount of doing will ever change toxic shame. We have to learn to just be able to be. Now, something that we need to talk about is public shaming and what we know now as quote-unquote cancel culture. British journalist and author John Ronson explored the impact of public shaming on people in a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and it was published in 2015. And this is before the phrase cancel culture even became popular. In the age of social media and the internet, the phenomenon of public shaming has really taken center stage. And John covers this brilliantly in his book, and I highly recommend that you check it out if you're interested in it. And he talks all about the world of online shaming and the devastating impact it has on people. And through a series of case studies and interviews, he really uncovers some horrifying stories about people who have experienced the wrath of the internet's collective outrage. And he talks about the disproportionate punishment that often follows public shaming online, where people's lives are forever altered by one single comment or one single mistake and it leaves them to be forever defined by their worst moments and in his book john ronson explores this dangerous mob mentality that's a lot like these peer groups in school but almost worse because it's memorialized online forever and this mob mentality is what fuels public shaming And as people join in without fully understanding the context or consequences of their actions. And the book also sheds light on the emotional toll public shaming has on both the victims and those who participate in the shaming process. And John's work serves as a really powerful reminder of the importance of empathy and of understanding that we need to cultivate as we move deeper and deeper into this ever-increasingly connected and judgmental world. So what are some of the things that John highlighted from his book? He talks about the magnitude of impact. Online public shaming has really severe consequences on someone's life, causing significant emotional distress and even leading to long-term psychological trauma. And this is because the internet's reach can amplify the shame, making it really difficult for people to escape its effects. He also talks about disproportionate punishment. And in many cases, the punishment doled out through public shaming is far greater than the original offense. This shame can extend beyond the scope of the wrongdoing, and this leads to people feeling like they're being completely defined by a mistake they made. He also talks about lack of context, right? 
online platforms sometimes lack the necessary context for a complete understanding of the situation. And so this means it's really easy to misinterpret things and cast unfair judgments. People might jump to conclusions based on very limited information and they are unwittingly taking part in perpetuating a cycle of shame. He also talks about the devastating impacts public shaming on the internet has on people's professional and personal lives. It can completely destroy careers. It can damage their relationships, leading to isolation and social exclusion. People have even committed suicide. It makes me think of some of the contestants. I think there's a show called Love Island, if you're familiar with it. It's a reality show, which is highly entertaining, but highly problematic as well. Something that's not often spoken about is how many contestants from Love Island have actually ended up killing themselves after facing public ridicule online. And this has happened a lot for reality show contestants suffering deeply from public shaming and mental health consequences. So the beautiful part of John's book, though, is he also talks about the potential for redemption. He talks about even though public shaming can be devastating, some people have managed to find redemption through making sincere apologies, efforts to make amends, and self-improvement. But this redemption is a serious uphill battle. But overall, his work is so important and it emphasizes the need for empathy, context, and restraint when we're engaging in discussions or criticism online. And this book is a really good cautionary tale about the power and consequences of internet-based public shaming, and it calls for a more compassionate approach to dealing with the mistakes of other people. There are a few really good quotes from his book that I want to read to you. One of them is, We know that people are complicated and have a mixture of flaws and talents and sins, so why do we pretend that they don't? We're defining the boundaries of normality by tearing apart the people outside of it. There's nothing I dislike more in the world than people who care more about ideology than they do about people. We're creating a world where the smartest way to survive is to be bland and boring. I suppose it's no surprise that we feel the need to dehumanize the people we hurt before, during, or after the hurting occurs, but it always comes as a surprise. In psychology, it's known as cognitive dissonance. It's the idea that it feels stressful or painful for us to hold two contradictory ideas at the same time, like the idea that we're kind to people and the idea that we've just destroyed someone. And so to ease the pain, we create illusory ways to justify our contradictory behavior. The snowflake never needs to feel responsible for the avalanche. A life had been ruined. What was it for? Just some social media drama? I think our natural disposition as humans is to plod along until we get old and stop. But with social media, we've created a stage for constant artificial high drama. Every day, a new person emerges as a magnificent hero or a disgusting, sickening villain. It's all very sweeping 
and not the way we actually are as people. We can lead good, ethical lives, but some bad phrasing in a tweet can overwhelm it all. Even though we know that's not how we would define our fellow humans, what's true about our fellow humans is that we are clever and stupid. We are gray areas. And so, when you see an unfair or an ambiguous shaming unfold, speak up on behalf of the shamed person. A babble of opposing voices, that's democracy. The great thing about social media was how we gave voice to voiceless people. Let's not turn it into a world where the smartest way to survive is to go back to being voiceless. We see ourselves as non-conformist, but I think all of this is creating a more conformist, conservative age. We're creating a culture where people feel constantly surveilled, where people are afraid to be themselves. John Bradshaw did a lot of his work before the rise of the internet. And I can't even imagine the takes that he would have now. He's since passed away, John Bradshaw, what he would think about the shaming that's happening online. But John Ronson, the writer of this book, did some brilliant work in carrying on this work. And I want you to think about this too. In addition to thinking about your own toxic shame, are you at all taking part in shaming online? Are you taking part in passing your own toxic shame onto others like a hot potato? It's so incredibly important that we become aware of this in this day and age. So that's it for today. We have one more episode of the shame series left on the next episode we're going to be carrying on this exploration of the systems that we interact with in our lives that perpetuate toxic shame we're going to be talking about the religious system how god is seen as punitive we're going to be talking about how religion in the west particularly makes us deny our emotion the connection between religion and perfectionism, and also we'll move into talking about society at large, how our cultural system is compulsive and addicted, and how it encourages rigid sex roles and the myth of perfect, the denial of emotions, the myth of the the good boy and the good girl. So that's it for the free portion of Back from the Borderline. And out of all the things you could spend your time on, out of all the content options available, you chose to be here with me. But most importantly, you chose to show up for yourself. So next up is the back half of the episode, which will be available to my paying subscribers. So if you're tuning in from the public Back from the Borderline feed, you will get to hear a preview of this. You can unlock full episodes as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content by becoming a premium submarine. To sign up today, you can check out the link in the show notes or visit backfromtheborderline.com. So let's get into it. So I thought for today's premium portion of the podcast, we would take some listener questions. So let's Here, our first question from Matt. Hi, Molly. My name's Matt. I'm a premium submariner. 
38-year-old guy, male identifying from San Francisco and New Orleans. Um, I'm calling in because I recently found your podcast after um, kind of getting a diagnosis and being in really intensive mental health treatment after blowing up my five-and-a-half-year partnership and my job, potentially career, my geographic setting, the works. And yeah, maybe I consider myself a little older, but I am calling in because I've been binge listening and want to spend this time um, learning as much as I can and integrating it. Um, And I don't know if that's needing like a beginner's course podcast of all the stuff you've synthesized over these years or a series on DBT, you know, maybe the four components, but I'm just really trying to, and maybe it's BPD talking, but do as much as possible to really ingrain some of this better living. I'm so grateful for your podcast. Um, I'm at rock bottom. Uh, I sound better though. And um, I hope to hear more resources from you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Ah, Matt, this was such a lovely voicemail. And I really, really relate to so much of what you shared here. And it sounds like you're going through hell. And I've just spent a couple of weeks here recording as many episodes in the podcast as I can. So I'm a bit ahead in my recording schedule. So you all are going to be hearing in the next episode, me talking about how we can view rock bottom as moving through the underworld. And something that I found didn't help me in my recovery is my tendency to rush things, is to want to be better, want to make it to the recovered ED, right? Like past tense, the finish line and be better. And I wanted to stuff as much knowledge in my brain as possible. I wanted to learn as many skills as possible. And then what happened along the way was I forgot my body and I forgot my intuition. I forgot to explore the root cause of my pain. It's likely that you probably, if you're a premium submarine, you listened to last week's meditation, the black bear meditation, where we learn to be able to sit with that pain and understand the purpose that it served. And Matt, if I have any advice for you, it's to explore that. Are you so in your head and are you putting so much pressure on yourself to put the pieces of your life back together that you're forgetting to investigate and sit with the root cause of that pain? Where did it come from? How can you nurture yourself? This is a little bit of shameless self-promotion, but I wouldn't recommend it unless I actually found it helpful. The reason why I created it was because of the impact it had on me was going back, if you're a premium submarine, which you said you are, going back and listening to my Hero's Journey series. It really talks about how to come out of a rock bottom moment. I also recommend, in addition to all the therapy I'm sure you're already doing, is potentially looking into depth psychology. 
and Jungian psychology and seeing if some of these Jungian analysts who talk a lot about meaning making could be helpful for you. I highly recommend the work of James Hollis. If you look into him, I'm actually going to be having him on the podcast in the next few weeks. And I hope that episode will be helpful for you. But be patient with yourself. Give yourself grace. Realize that this is not a race and that you can retune back into your body, tune back into the root causes and where these things came from. And I'm just sending you huge hugs. Thanks for your question, Matt. And speaking of self-forgiveness, that is the topic of this next voicemail from a listener who chose to remain anonymous. Hi, Molly. Um, I don't really want to say my name or where I'm from, um, but you could just call me M. Um, I'm a premium subscriber, uh, by the way. I was wondering if you had any advice on um, how to forgive yourself for all the really toxic, fucked up shit that we as people who identify with symptoms of BPD um, may cause in our lives. Um, A year ago, um, I did something really fucked up and I slept with my friend's boyfriend uh, multiple times. I'd known her since middle school. Um, Eventually I fessed up and I, People found out. I told people, and um, I lost my entire friend group, including my very best friend. Um, and uh, I moved away. Um, I'm making new friends. I have a boyfriend. I'm doing okay, but I'm just haunted by this guilt almost every day. I think of it. I see it, and everything, everything I do. There's reminders. Everything I see. Um, And I have these crazy fucking dreams, these crazy dreams about it. And I was just wondering if you had any advice on how to forgive yourself and move on from things that are in the past. Um, Thank you. Thank you for this voicemail and for your vulnerability. I want to tell you a little story. So when I, and it will make sense, I promise. When I was 15, it was the first time I ever got drunk. Me and my friend, Jessica, had our friend Brad, who's now actually passed away from alcoholism the last two years, and I'm only 33. He was in his 30s. But he passed us a fifth of rum through my window at my house. (laughs) We were 15, okay? He had a fake ID, so he was able to like buy alcohol, and so we paid him And then he got it for us, for me and Jessica. And we got a fifth of Admiral Nelson's, which is like a knockoff Captain Morgan. And Captain Morgan is already cheap. So you can imagine how disgustingly shitty this rum was that we got. And Jessica and I were 15-year-old girls at the time. I would imagine I didn't even weigh, if I weighed 100 pounds, maybe 105 pounds or something at the time. I was a really skinny teenage girl. And Jessica was even shorter than me. We were both really small. And we chugged that entire bottle of Admiral Nelson's, a fucking fifth of it. 
in like, I would say a matter of like 10 minutes, we didn't have any conception of like how getting drunk worked. So we were drinking it and we're like, why don't we feel drunk yet? Right? Like so immature. Long story short, we got so drunk. Like I'm talking about alcohol poisoning drunk. My mom found us and Jessica ended up getting sent home with her mom. And my parents were so scared because I was pretty, pretty much unresponsive. <laughs> and my parents took me to the hospital, which was like horrifyingly traumatic for my sister and my parents because they thought that I was going to die. Thankfully, I didn't have to get my stomach pumped, but they did have to keep me under observation for a while and I had to have an IV and it was a nightmare. So as my parents are pushing me out of the hospital in a wheelchair, <laughs> there was a cop standing outside um, the hospital doors. And let me just tell you, I'm 15 years old, so I'm at the height of caring about what I look like and being obsessed with my own appearance. And let's just say after being unresponsive, drunk off my ass and getting an IV and being in the hospital and then throwing up, by the way, I was like puking all over myself in the car and stuff. Like it was like the worst you could ever imagine. And I had really, really long hair at the time. It was like down to my waist and there was so much puke and like vomit in my hair that it looked like I had dreadlocks. So like when I tell you that you can't even imagine how hot of a mess I looked being wheeled out of that hospital. So as I mentioned, there was a police officer standing outside the doors of the emergency room and he was the one that was kind of there when I was brought in. He obviously knew I was drunk and he knew I was underage AF. And my dad looked at the police officer and was like, well, does she need to get a charge brought against her? Is she going to get a MIP? And that's what we called like a minor in possession ticket. And the police officer <laughs> looked me up and down. He really like took in the puke dreads and just the state of my appearance. And I was crying and talk about shame. I felt so much shame. I was so embarrassed and the police officer said to my dad, she's clearly basically done enough to herself tonight. I don't think she needs an MIP ticket. It looks like this is the look of someone who's going to learn a really hard lesson tonight. And you know what? He was right. And sure enough, it was like three years before I even touched a drop of alcohol again. And... I had to deal with some really, really shameful feelings after that day. I'm telling this story now because it was one of the moments that I just remember feeling like this is as bad as it's ever going to get. I remember waking up that next morning. Number one, I didn't have a hangover. That was the only blessing because I was shot up with so much IV fluids in the hospital that I kind of got to bypass the hangover I probably would have felt. My dad said the next day, he's like, that you did not get a realistic understanding of how you would feel after you chugged a fifth of rum because of that IV. So just know that. And he's right because man, hangovers are a bitch. But I felt so much shame. I had actually puked out my window. And so I had to, in like a hundred degree weather, wipe the puke off the side of our house. And my parents were so 
disappointed with me. And also I was dealing with guilt and shame from what I had put them through. My little sister literally thought I was going to die and she was sobbing and crying in the back of the car. And I felt horrible. And I just remember being like, it's never going to get any better than this. I'm a horrible person. Look what I put my family through. Now, fast forward to I've been cheated on and I've had friends betray me, but I've also betrayed friends too. And while I've never been in a situation that's exactly the same as yours, I have slept with people before that I knew were in relationships or were even engaged or married when I was at my lowest, lowest points. And that's devastating for me to look back on. And there was one time where the girlfriend of one of these people, this is when I think I was back when I was maybe like in my early 20s, reached out to me with such anger. And we were kind of like caught out. And again, so much shame. And I lived in a really small town. And so this was something that was spoken about. And you said, you know, you fucked up. You know you made a mistake. You betrayed your friend. But you admitted what you did. You knew it was wrong. You might have shame right now, but you are not the shame. Losing friends, having to move away and start over, I know that feeling. I've tried to run away my whole life from my shame. I've moved cities four or five times. All right, everyone, you know what that means. That's it for today's free version of Back from the Borderline. If you want to hear the full version where I finish out the answer to this listener's question and talk more about what I came back from these shame spirals, I also take another question from a listener named Caleb who is struggling with moving forward as well and we talk about unblocking our access to our creativity. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can unlock the full version of this episode as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content by visiting backfromtheborderline.com and clicking premium submarine. Not only do my premium submarines receive loads of additional premium content each month, but the support of my subscribers also helps me focus on podcasting full-time and invest more in research and production quality. If you're not quite ready yet to become a premium submarine, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or even better, sharing an episode with someone you care about. That's my favorite form of promotion. To make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow Back from the Borderline on your favorite podcast app. I also share daily photos, quotes, and additional reflections and resources with my community on Instagram. You can follow me there at backfromtheborderline.com. I also just launched a brand new podcast called Night Night Bitch, which is a mystical bedtime story podcast. So you can check that out too. Never forget. You haven't met all of you yet. Within your weaknesses, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. All right, 
I'll see you next Tuesday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.